Welcome to Get Birding, a guide to bird watching and a home to stories about birds. Supported by Swarovski Optic and Zurich Insurance. My name's Hamza Yassin and uh, I'm a wildlife cameraman living in the west coast of Scotland. Super lucky to be living here, surrounded by wildlife, but more importantly, surrounded by the birds. I absolutely love birds. Birds make me tick. I wake up thinking about birds, I go to sleep thinking about birds. Most of my filming is birds. I'm kind of lucky to have a career that used to be a hobby, but now I've made it my career as a wildlife cameraman, all thanks to birds. I'll be hosting season two of Get Birding, but I thought I'd catch up with Maya because she's done this before and I want to see if she has any ideas for me or tips and tricks. How are you doing, first of all? Um, I'm really good. Um, I'm really glad I was able to come back for another episode of the series just because I wasn't able to carry on because of uni, but I loved doing it so much um, at the start of the year and so it's, it's weird to be back but it's nice. Do you have any tips for me? Like I forgot that people are listening on the other end sometimes I was literally just like chatting to myself about birds um, and I think one of my favourite things that happened because of the podcast is I sort of pushed the boundaries of my own like the way that I interacted with nature in a few different ways I sort of went outside of my comfort zone a bit which was like quite uncomfortable obviously but it was 100% worth it yeah uh, giving yourself opportunities to do that is brilliant I think it was such a wonderful thing kind of like hearing about your day-to-day and your like patch diary and stuff are you still doing your own patch diary yeah um I'm not into a recorder anymore but I I think it was nice because it got me into the habit of I suppose not just observing birds in the moment but really taking a step outside of that and being like, whoa, I'm really lucky that I'm experiencing this in this moment. Which I guess I got into the habit of that just because I, I was thinking about the birds that I was seeing constantly and thinking, what if this would be interesting to someone who's listening right now? And again, the really fun thing about that made me realise that loads of the birds I was seeing are really fun and really interesting. Do you feel like you had to kind of like describe the bird in more detail than you normally would? Because for me, I'll be walking around and be like, oh look, a blackbird, and then I keep on moving. But when I've got the recorder and I'm recording, I tend to, yeah? Yeah, absolutely the same. Um, And I guess it's a similar thing to you in that I've been birding for years and years to the point where I don't even have that moment of trying to identify a lot of the birds I look at. And it's so like drilled down into my brain that again, I really had to get into the habit of being like, actually, no, there's no expectation that people know what this is, know what it sounds like, know what it looks like. But again, it took me really outside of my own bubble to have to sit down and be like, how would I describe a blackbird? How would I describe a song thrush or a robin? Again, I think sort of translating that love of birds into a different format helped me to fall in love with birds all over again. Especially with sort of the more common garden birds where I'd be describing them to the listener and then I'd be like actually this is a beautiful bird it's amazing that I'm seeing these all the time they're brilliant I love them so much
my friends think I'm just an absolute geek. Uh, a geek, sorry. They call me a twitcher, you know, and I'm like, and and they kind of like twitch their shoulder every time and like squint an eye. And I at first I was like, what do you what do you mean by twitcher, twitcher? And that's my question to you is, what is a twitcher? What is your definition of a twitcher? Right. So I think a bird watcher is someone who doesn't necessarily have a single bird they want to see. It's more like going out into nature, seeing what turns up around you, seeing what you bump into, all that sort of thing. You might know that certain things are going to be in certain places, but that's just part of having a local patch. While twitching is having like a target that you have to see. Normally like a single bird is turned up somewhere in the area or the country and it's super rare, probably not from the UK and you have to go and see it, you have to track it down. So you drive quite often quite long distances to go and see the single bird. And I used to do a lot of both. Like, especially when I was a really young kid, I loved twitching because I found it really exciting. Like, I think it was a really good thing to do as a kid because my parents made those twitching into a bit of a treasure hunt for me while birding. You know, you've got the infamous birder's pace where if someone's birding, they're walking about a quarter of the speed of a normal person. And I remember going on walks with my parents and when I was like four or five, I'd find it really boring. I was like, can we not just walk faster? I'm sure we'll still see some birds. But these days, I think, I think my birding probably outweighs my twitching. And I think I feel a lot more, especially like post-COVID, I think I found a lot more joy in just being out in nature and seeing what I can see. I'm kind of the same. I've never really twitched. I had a friend, Chris Bridge, and he's, when we were in uni, we were in uni together, and he kind of got me into twitching eventually. But he didn't drive at the time, and I did. I was his warden, and he was in, like, in the neighbouring room. So he used to tap in the uh, room, like on the wall, at like three o'clock in the morning. And I hear this little tiny tap, like, yeah? Are you awake? I was like, yes. Look, there's so-and-so over on Anglesey. Do you want to go and see it? And my thing was always, is it a pretty bird? Because I'm a photographer. If it's a pretty bird, I'll go and <laughs> I'll drive at three o'clock in the morning. But it, I think I did like two or three twitches and that was kind of it. But then I got into bird ringing more so than twitching and birding. So birding was been throughout my whole life, but I got into bird ringing more and I found it, more satisfying because what I see in a fleeting glimpse or something that flies past I get to really study it in the hand I get to see its primary tertiary feathers how to wage it have you done ringing before yeah yeah I have I got my um sea license when I was 16 and I think it goes to show like there's so many different ways to engage with birds in the outdoors as well which I think is partly the fun of it like not everyone's interested in being a bird watcher. There are loads of bird ringers. I know that that is the way that they spend time with birds and they love it. They love being able to see them in the hand and look at their feathers and hold them. Um, so I was about nine when like I heard about bird ringing for the first time and I was like, I absolutely have to do this. This is so cool. I want to be able to touch birds. Um, obviously at the time I didn't know how many years of training and learning and making sure that you're looking after the birds goes into all of it so I didn't actually start training till I was probably 11 Um, and then you're not allowed to get your license until you're 16 Um, 
but I loved bird ringing um especially pre-pandemic I used to go like every weekend and it was like I said just a completely different level to looking at birds and I think one of the things that surprised me most is so I was talking about earlier how loads of common birds I can just look at them in the wild and I, I know what they are which you know built up over the years but I think when you're holding a bird in the hand it's so much more difficult to identify them which is bizarre because they're um they're closer you should be able to see it better and be like oh of course this is so and so but it's really difficult especially when they're not making any noise and they're not like in a particular habitat so I think that was the surprising thing that I found very difficult now we're approaching a bit where we're going to uh, the beach in front of the house but I'm going through the grass right now good so that's a curlew which is amazing one of the uh, oh lovely lovely to hear the sound of that curlew i have a resident group of about three or four curlews here um, two waters two herons that are always squabbling over the pond that's outside the house it's a wee lochin actually scottish for a small loch as i'm looking out at the moment i can hear all the heron gulls the chicks they're calling away you can hear this gentle seep and it's like And that's me trying to imitate it. But if I just sit nice and quiet a little bit, hopefully you'll be able to hear it. Now, Maya Rose, you are known around the world for your environmental activism. Why do you feel that you need to do it? That's an interesting question. I think there's lots of reasons. So I've, I'm 19 and I've been doing stuff since I was about 11. And originally I started doing environmental campaigning just because I, um, for various reasons, set up a blog called, called Bird Girl because I was a girl who loved birds. Um, and I got a really big platform. I didn't really expect anyone to read it, but loads of people did. And very quickly I realised that I was more interested in talking about the issues that I cared about the pro the issues going on in the world compared to just you know like birds and stuff because I had other ways to do that um, and I felt like I had an opportunity to do something something good but I guess in terms of why I do it I feel partially like I said I think that there's a responsibility if you have a platform in terms of trying to make this world a better place but I think even without that I probably would have gotten into activism just because I, I absolutely am a big believer in doing your part in terms of trying to push, yeah, for a better future. I also think, um, you know, uh, that like doomism and eco-anxiety and, and all these things have become such massive issues, especially in my generation. And I think personally, my way of pushing against that and feeling optimistic about the future is taking action is doing things feeling like I'm contributing to the movement in some way however big or small 
Um, oh yeah, I was chatting to someone this morning and they said something like the answer to apathy is to fight back with action. Um, and I was like, yeah, absolutely. But I, I just, it feels really personally important to me and it always yeah. has. Um, yeah, no, that that's a great answer because everyone can ask me that question and it depends on what time of the year or what I'm going through and the answer will change. And for me, it would be like, we need to get the young generation into loving Mother Nature. And then people go, huh? What? What do you mean? It's like, they're spending more time on their mobile phone than being outside. Do you know what I mean? You don't need a mobile phone when you're eight years old. That's my take on it. Like, take their mobile phones away. But actually, it's not the case. It's how do we get them engaged with it? What? How do we make it interesting for them? Because as soon as we make it interesting for them, they're going to fall in love with it. Give Mother Nature a little bit of space and they're going to love it. Absolutely love it. So Sir David Attenborough inspired me. I'm hoping that I can inspire the next generation. There's no point preaching to the converted. Let's preach to the younger ones. Tell them how cool Mother Nature is and why we need to look after it. Whether that's in, you know, sea levels rising, um, carbon footprint, you know, uh, recycling, whatever it is. I think it's all about the next generation. I absolutely agree. And um, I, so I have a charity called Black to Nature and I work with a lot of kids from like in the city areas, but especially from black and Asian backgrounds. Uh, and there's various reasons I do that. And sorry, we're taking them out into nature, giving them that opportunity to engage with the outdoors and nature. And there's various reasons I do that. I think it's so important for the kids that we work with to, you know, forge that um, bond. But I also think like, people have no reason to care about environmental issues, you know, things like biodiversity loss, if they've never experienced biodiversity in the first place. Why should people care if they've never left the city, if they have no frame of reference for what the, the you know, these various environmental crises actually mean for our planet um, and our nature? And so I absolutely think that one of the key things in terms of you know, engaging young people with the movement and and encouraging young people to, I, I suppose, join. It is allowing them to experience it and love it, fall in love with it. I think it's really cool you mentioned David Attenborough just because obviously you can speak to any environmentalist ever and they're like, yeah, I grew up in David Attenborough. I love him, think he's brilliant, love his programmes. Um, and absolutely same. And I think... Like that brings up something really important because for a lot of people, like these kind of programs absolutely are their first step into experiencing something bigger, something out there that they've never really thought about before. You know, the amazing nature that's out there within this country and all over the world. I think especially in recent years as they've added in this more political message, I think that that's become, yeah, extremely powerful, extremely important. Um, and I think it goes to show, you know, we all have our role to play. Now, you said Black to Nature. You've made this organisation called Black to Nature. Do any of the people that are, do any of the people that go to it start loving birds? Do they go, oh, you know what, Maya, I saw this bird and it was like this. And can you, do they come back and like say that to you? Is birding ever part of their thing? Or is it all like, you know butterflies, moths and all that kind of stuff. 
it's absolutely birds partially because it was originally just me running them and I love birds so it was birds that I was going to talk to people about but also I think like I talked about this quite a lot during series one of Get Birding actually because I think birds are such a good access point to nature you know they're absolutely everywhere they're in the middle of the city and the middle of the countryside they're super visible um they're pretty easy to identify compared to like you know I know people who are into moths and things like that and you I think people end up having to dissect them to you know identify what's you know it's two ends of the spectrum most birds you can look at them and say this is this so I think birds are a brilliant access point and I think they're so easy um, so we do a lot of birding, we do bird ringing sessions and things like that with the kids. And I think like at the end of the day, I'm not trying, we have had a few proper environmentalists come out of that, which is always really exciting. Um, but we're not necessarily trying to create a new generation of environmentalists. The most exciting moments for me is when I'm chatting to kids afterwards and they talk about just, you know, walking to the bus for school and just noticing the birds flying around in the parks and things like that. And I'm like, yeah, that's, it's done it you have that relationship with nature you're aware of the nature around you and I think that's the most important thing both in terms of people caring about these issues but also for people's own well well-being and their own mental health what's happening now on your patch Right, so any listeners to series one of Get Birding know that I was absolutely obsessed with the ravens um, living in my house that had a nest, which I, as far as I can tell, fledged very successfully. And there were these sort of strange raindrop calls. Um, and then during the summer, and they went really, really quiet. And I assumed that they had just sort of moved on. A few days ago, I heard that strange pinging raindrop call again. And I was so happy because it meant, meant the... Um, the ravens are still hanging around my house. So that was really cool. Another really nice thing is that I'm lucky enough to get marsh tits in my garden. And I have for quite a few years now, which is cool. I've been able to ring quite a few of them. So I can, I know that there's probably at least five or six that are coming in regularly. There's a set of parents that year after year have brought their chicks down to our feeders to sort of gorge themselves. That's really cool. I mean, there's loads of things. I could talk about, like, every single bird from, you know, the rare stuff to, like, the blue tits and the black birds in my garden for hours. But, yeah, loads of cool stuff going on, Um, especially as summer has ended and autumn is, I'd say, pretty fully begun now. So we've got, I guess, different tiers of rare birds, what people consider rare. For some people, who, especially people who are very into the local patch, a rare bird is just something that they wouldn't normally stumble into in their local patch, but there's still something that's really common in the UK. And it's fun because it's still really exciting because it's a rare bird. Then you've got, I suppose, rarities that are pretty common, that sort of are blown in now and again, normally from Europe, maybe not slightly off migration. I mean, I mean that literally. Um, so loads of the rare birds turn up in the UK aren't here on purpose or and have normally gotten maybe a bit lost maybe they were migrating or flying long distance and maybe there was a big storm or a very strong breeze and they literally got blown so when there's very big atlantic storms um you quite often get very rare birds from america showing up um which is why some birders get very excited when there are certain types of extreme weather 
but I, I think with all of these things, like, like I said, like I think um, a rare bird is as joyful as you let it be, if that makes sense, in that it doesn't have to be like a first, the first time it's ever been seen in the UK. Sometimes it can just be the first time that you've seen this bird this month, or it can be um, the first time you've managed to get a really good look at a kingfisher through your binoculars. And, you know, like other people might not be like, I don't know, other people might be like, oh, that's not that rare. But for you, it is, um, which I think like comes on to this wider thing of bird watching totally being made of the joy that the bird watcher allows it to give them, if that makes sense. But yeah. Speaking of rare birds, there was one bird that I had to get more information about. It was everywhere. It was on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all over the social medias. And I spoke to Poppy Rumry from Bempton Cliffs about it. So do you think Bempton Cliffs is unique as an RSVB reserve? Definitely, yeah. I mean, there's not many RSVB reserves that you can go to that have puffins and gannets and we're sort of the only sort of mainland gannet colony or one of the largest mainland gannet colonies in the in the UK. We have sort of eight main species of seabird here as well. So there's a, a good variety for people that love, I mean, the small ones, the big ones. And then at the minute, we've got the fantastic black-browed albatross around. Yeah, I'm glad you <laughs> mentioned that because I'm looking on social media and yeah. this bird's popping up everywhere. Every person who is a birder, wants to be a birder, is going over to see it. Have you seen it for yourself? I have, yeah. Oh, amazing. It, it's, I say it's been around for a couple of years to some extent. The last couple of years, um, the albatross has been, been to Bempton sort of every single year. Originally just for a couple of days at a time. So last year it appeared uh, for, I think it was two three days or so and I completely missed it didn't see it at all <laughs> I think I was I was very new in the role and I was taking or putting ice creams back into a freezer um, and yeah. didn't want to leave them to melt on the side to go and see an albatross which would have been pretty mental in itself but yeah um, I didn't quite feel I could leave those there yet <laughs> this year after it was first sort of spotted at the end of June thought right yeah I'm gonna go and find it I got up really early one day I think it was a day off actually so I got up about half past four in the morning I well it was incredible flew straight over the top of my head almost like locked eyes with it um yeah it was just it was something else I was kind of I did have a bit of an emotional moment and had a couple of tears in my eyes but that's because it's been sort of it's my favorite bird ever since I was little, um, and I've always really, really wanted to see one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, where does the uh, black-browed albatross normally come from? It's it's basically in the wrong hemisphere. <laughs> Several different islands where they sort of uh, colonise, um, and this one has just potentially been blown off course um, and has got its navigation wrong and has just ended up sort of wandering the oceans around here. And how do you know it's the same one when it comes back from year to year? We can't be 100% sure, 
Okay. Um, but it is pretty, I don't want to say pretty regular, but it tends to be, I think when it arrived at Bempton last year, it was about the the end of June and it arrived at the end of June again this year. So I think there are only a couple of days in it. Last year it stayed for a couple of days and it's still here today as well. So it stayed for over two months, which is mental. Um, hasn't happened before. Do you think it will attract any of its mates to come up and see what the Northern Hemisphere is a bit like? I mean, having it here is a pretty once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to some extent. And I mean, to, for it to have a mate would be... Yeah, I don't even know how to... It would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, it would be pretty cool. Now, something as, as rare as the black-browed albatross coming to Bennington Cliffs, has it changed the viewing numbers? Have you had to put something in to kind of you know, direct the flow? Because I know a lot of Twitchers follow birds around the UK. Yeah, trying to get the number of people in um, was interesting, but I think we, we managed it and it has been just a really busy year. I think with people not being able to sort of travel abroad as well, we've also had lots of people sort of holidaying up here and visiting Bempton at the same time and not really realising that there was an albatross there at all. Would you want something like that to happen again, do you think? Or is it kind of interesting that it's just such a rare bird, you want it to be the only bird? I mean, I mean, if the albatross wants to come, well, it's not, I suppose, it's not left yet. So I don't want to say, oh, yeah, you can head off now. You can come back next year. Yeah. Um, but I mean, if it was to leave, which it potentially might do when uh, the gannets kind of head off um, out to sea, Right. Um, it might leave with them, might stay on the cliffs, we don't really know. Um, but if it was to come back next year, it'd be quite interesting to see if it does come back at a similar time and yep. how long it would stay for. Um, it's quite interesting just like watching its behaviour, really. It has been a pretty fantastic bird to watch and just pick up on all this. I mean, I knew bits about them, but I think having it there almost in the field and being able to see it and sort of watch it has just sort of increased my knowledge and I've I've been become even more interested in albatross if um that is even possible. <laughs> so where would you you would have had to have gone to the southern hemisphere to see them for yourself. Do you think you'll ever get the chance to see that? Would you want to do that? I would absolutely love to. I mean mm. um because the albatross at Bempton is a black-browed albatross and there are so many different species of albatross out there. I'd love to be able to I don't know, try and see as many as possible. Um, I think they're all so different and the black-browed is maybe one of the smaller albatrosses as well. So it's got a wingspan of about 2.4 metres, <laughs> which is still massive in itself. But yeah. there are like other albatross out there with even bigger Yes. Um, and I just can't begin to kind of comprehend that. Yeah, to travel out there would be fantastic. And just to get a feel of this species and, and their lives would be great. What's it like, your commute to work? It's slightly uphill. So occasionally, <laughs> if I walk or cycle, I kind of get to a point where I'm knackered. And then all of a sudden, I can I can see the sea. And it's pretty fantastic. I kind of so my role is kind of seasonal um so it's it's when all the seabirds are here a lot of the seabirds that we get at Bempton um 
tend to sort of disappear after the breeding season. Puffins, for example, go and spend their time out on the North Sea and they'll be with us sort of from end of March, early April until about mid-July. So you get a really short window uh, where all these seabirds are on the cliffs and then everything starts to gradually get a bit quieter. Everyone kind of associates Bempton with puffins and puffins are a big part of Bempton. I th- when I first saw Bempton Cliffs, it was kind of, I sort of walked down, it's a couple of minutes walk to the actual cliff tops themselves and there's sort of six fantastic viewing platforms uh, sort of scattered along the cliff edge. I think I went to the first ever, the first viewpoint and just stood and looked out across the sea and could just hear this uh, fantastic sort of symphony of like, kitty wakes and just all of the seabirds that were there at that point. We've got about half a million seabirds now, sort of between sort of Flamborough Head, which is just slightly further um, south from us here, um, up to just slightly up towards Filey. So we we count, um, there's just an area of coast where we kind of do all our seabird monitoring and is a protected area as well. The smell as well was pretty, not amazing, um, (laughs) it it is really a sort of experience of all the senses. And just to kind of be brought in by this tiny, tiny bird that everyone um, absolutely loves is, is pretty incredible. It's almost like... People come for the puffins, but leave with so much more. Do you ever get used to the smell? I think so. I think I might have. I can't really say I've acclimatised to it. Um, that's, I've acclimatised to the temperature up here. Okay. Um, definitely. But I think I have roughly got used to the smell. And it's it's not as potent now um, as it would be in sort of the heat of summer. Yeah. I've, I've done exactly the same. I've spent a few months on uh, islands in the West Coast here that are full of these seabirds and I go home and I'm taking this ferry back and everyone gives me like a good three four meter radius and I didn't understand why then I realized the next day when I got changed like got changed my clothes and got back into it's my smell that was (laughs) that's what it was (laughs) now what would the winter be like at Bempton because you haven't had a winter yet what would you be doing during the winter I think this year it will be a lot of sort of events planning looking forward um to next year um and what we're going to be offering yeah sort of planning next season out um because it can be incredibly busy so sometimes you don't even get a chance to really think um and i'm very much excited for sort of autumn and autumn migration watching hopefully loads of thrushes come in off the sea and continue their migration um across the country and smaller passerines. Lots of people associate Bempton with the seabirds, but there are just, I mean, there's so many other species there as well. I mean, Bempton, because it's on the coast, um, it's in a really sort of a good place to kind of uh, see migration in action. So you'll get schemes of like pink-footed geese coming in off the sea and heading inland, swans, small birds like willow warblers and um yellow-browed warblers as well, tiny, and to some extent I say they look the same. They don't, but they do. There's just very small features that kind of, you can tell them apart. Yeah, there's just this big variety of birds that kind of use the coast to migrate inland, and you kind of get to watch the spectacle from Bempton to some extent. Have you ever seen Bempton Cliffs from the sea? I have, yes. What's that like? It's I mean, 
I didn't think it could be even more spectacular, uh, but it is. Um, and it's completely different perspective. You don't um, anticipate it's going to look the way it does from the sea. You're just staring up at these sort of 400 foot cliffs with this like massive birds on them. Um, I think it was, I'm trying to think when it was, a month or two ago now that I went on one of the um, seabird cruises. And it was, yeah, pretty breathtaking. I think I just seem to love being by the sea anyway. Um, and yeah, just to be on the sea watching the birds from sort of, I don't want to say like a closer, uh, you don't necessarily get closer to them to some extent, but you're kind of, you're, you are looking up at them as opposed to down, um, and seeing birds on the water around you, watching gannets feeding, um, off the back of the boat is just incredible. I mean, standing at the top and looking out over this massive sea is great but sort of being surrounded by it as well is just yeah, amazing. Last question. What cool scientific fact about birds would you like to share with me? Oh, it cool could be anything. Oh, I'm trying to think of something really cool now. I mean, I've said how big the albatross is now. I've kind of... <laughs> um, scientific fact. Oh, so in the winter, um, puffins don't actually have their coloured bill they're basically platelets um that they get rid of in the winter to make them less obvious on the water when they're spending that much time out on the sea uh, they need to be slightly less obvious and they don't need that bright color to attract a mate anymore um so they just kind of remove it amazing thank you thank you ever so That's much right. you've been an absolute star for me <laughs> you are oh, loved it loved it really did Now I've got a family of buzzards that are hanging around the house and it's a young juvenile again. It's that time of the year where the juveniles are being kicked out and they're calling to their parents all the time and they're kind of like, feed me, feed me, but the parents are just pushing them away and driving them away uh, because by this point, most chicks are used to feeding themselves. They've learnt how to fly and they're basically getting ready to go into winter where the parents want to recharge their batteries, kind of fatten up for the winter that's ahead, the lean winter that's up ahead, and then after that it goes into straight, straight into spring. And they need to be able to push the babies out, uh, leave the nest as such, and for them to start thinking about themselves again. So, you're off to uni soon. What are you going to be studying in uni? It's funny, because whenever I talk about this, I think people always expect me to go off doing, like, biology or zoology. Yeah. And I thought about it for a long time, but I think I realised that I prefer spending time with nature and the outdoors and animals, like, in a natural way, in a hobby way, if that makes sense. And I realised I wasn't that interested in studying them. Mm. So I'm actually going off to study politics, social anthropology and sociology because I also find people very interesting. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you think you'll be birding? Are you going to take your equipment or are you going to just have it as study time, learn, get my degree? Well, if I was a responsible person, <laughs> yes. I'd probably leave my equipment at home because <laughs> 
studied for the whole time. Um, I'm definitely taking my binoculars and my telescope with me. I went up a few months ago and already pinned down some of the amazing birding sites around my uni. Really? I am going to get in contact with the local birding club because I I love being outdoors and it's my hobby. And I can't imagine going for like months without going and looking at birds going and being outdoors like I'm sure you can totally relate and like, yeah. you live in the middle of nowhere don't you that's right um, it's possible yeah yeah absolutely like even even if I don't want a bird it happens naturally I'll be on my way to the supermarket um, I have to take a ferry to the supermarket so even on that ferry, I'll sit at the top and just look out at sea and go, ooh, look, there's two guillemots. Uh, there's a father and a, uh, a chick, you know, and then, ooh, look, a, a, an Icelandic gull just flew over. Even without me wanting, I, I'm, I make sure I don't take my binoculars and on some trips, I still do a bit of birding. So it comes naturally to me. And I was hoping that you were going to say you've been up to check out some cool stuff around there. Have you found anything interesting up there yet? Any cool birds? Well, I was only up there for a day, so I found some pretty cool wolf birds, but for the most part, it was mainly just, I was really impressed impressed by the really nice um, just reserves in general, because I really wasn't sure what to expect, and I feel like I'm very um, pampered, because I live very near like the Somerset levels and places like that, which are brilliant for birds. Um, but I think the thing I'm most excited about is, so I'm like right in the Southwest at the moment, um, it's being near the East Coast because I've I've always been like I'm near Bristol. It's a really bad place if you want to go to the East Coast to see all the rare birds that are flying in, but also all the um, migrating birds. So one of my like embarrassing secrets is I've never actually seen um, little in the UK. Right. For various reasons, but I've never seen it in the UK, and I'm hoping that I will at some point soon. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's big my big hope for the next few years that I'm finally going to see some little orcs flying by on the east hopefully. coast hopefully yeah fingers crossed because you've been to both the arctic and the antarctic correct yeah so you've seen little orcs before only once I, okay. so I went to the arctic with greenpeace um for a climate change campaign um a year ago I was there a year ago exactly actually right um, right it, it feels like it was a very long time ago now um but I had a few birds that I really wanted to see. Like Two what? of them were like super rare. It was, you know, um, I wanted to see all the rare gulls that you can only see that far north. I wanted to see like Brunix Guillemot and things like that. And I also had Little Orc on my list, which, like I said, most people in the UK that are really into that kind of birding have seen them. Um, and it felt, I, I did see them and I was so excited. Um, but it felt bizarre that I'd ended up going that far north into the Arctic Circle to end up seeing them rather than just going to, like, you know, I don't know, Spurn or something. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's funny you say that because most people have seen a little orc, and I've seen a little orc, but in the UK. But I've not seen a kingfisher. Really? Can you believe it? For God knows how many years I've been birding... I have not seen a kingfisher. And I always get the similar responses. Oh, you should have been here five minutes ago. And And you see me like getting frustrated. I'm like, why? I've heard them. Like I've seen them go past, but you know, so I think for every single birder, there is that one bird that like 
evades them that they just don't yeah. get the chance to see. Yeah, the um the bogey bird. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What old school people would call it. Um, yeah, that's. I'm sorry, that is insane to me. I've, I've <laughs> so many kingfishers in the past few months. I, um, that's really. I'm, I'm sure you'll see one one day, and I'm sure it'll be brilliant views. I'm hoping. I'm hoping. Like. I've heard them, but I don't classify that as a sighting. No, no. For me to actually classify that I've seen a bird, I need to physically have my binoculars, put them to my eyes, and have a good 15-second mm. look, like mm. 50, minimum 15 seconds. And mm. like the longer I get with it, the more happier I'm being. I'm like, yeah, tick, I've seen one of those before. Um, and it's kind of like trying to understand its behaviour or, you know, something along those lines. But... Um, yeah, that's interesting. Is there anything else you're looking forward to when you go to uni? I think, to be honest, like, it is just having a new local patch. Um, like, like I said earlier, I think one of the real joys, for me at least, like, I've been very lucky in terms of the pandemic, has just been being able to really thoroughly explore all the local areas. I found so many new places. I feel like even though I've lived here my whole life, it's the past year or two that I've really gotten to know this area, um, you know, like the back of my hand. I guess it, I, like my hope for me is just replicating that and being able to be like, oh yeah, of course, you can just pop here to see this. <laughs> and be like the expert of the local area. That would be really cool. I'm going to be a local expert by the end of That'd it. So cool. That'd be so cool. I can't wait. Hopefully when I come down or I'm on my way down and you've got a bit of time, I'd love to come and do a bit of birding with you. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that'd be brilliant. Love to team up at some point. What cool scientific bird fact can you give me? I think, um, like, because I've been, for anyway, various reasons, I've been researching a lot about um, bird migration uh -huh. um, for the past few months, and I've been writing quite a lot about bird migration. So I think one of my favourite things has just been discovering all the really cool ways which birds go to extremes when they migrate. So the obvious one is the Arctic turn. Um, they have the longest migration in the world. They go from the Arctic to Antarctica and back every year, which is like, uh, this is wrong, but it feels like it's about 70,000 kilometers anyway yeah. I know it's enough to go to the moon and back several times yeah uh, across a lifetime I also was researching um bar-headed goose which this is really cool just because they fly over the Himalayas yes. every year to migrate Himalayas and back um which I thought was incredible anyway they have like special blood so they can absorb enough oxygen they have special feathers so their wings don't literally freeze yeah um i think the thing that really cemented to me just how cool that was how extreme it was was when i read that they fly so high that the air is so thin that a helicopter couldn't even take off yep. in that altitude yep. uh, which i just found so cool um and i think just in general it's amazing how like nature especially birds just beats us in yes. so many different ways yes that's amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Maya Rose. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I look forward to slowly filling the big boots that you left behind for me, um, and picking up your baton and running with it. But thank you very much. Um, and yeah. No, thank you so much for having back for a chat. I know that the podcast's in good hands. Yeah. Um, I know you're doing <laughs> amazing for it. Um, so thank you for having me back.
Hey, it's a pleasure. It's my pleasure. I'd like to give a big thank you to all my guests on this week's podcast. If you enjoyed it and want to find out more and want to contribute, we are on social media at GetBirdingPod. And drop us a line. Tell us what you guys think. um, If you have any queries, if you want any topics you'd like us to cover. And also tune in to the next episode to see who we have in store for you guys. That's a group of starlings just flying overhead. Uh, They're not making too much noise at the moment, but there's like a little rip sound. And I normally get starlings nesting in my fascia boards every summer. Um, My house is slowly being uh, repaired and I've got a few holes in the fascia boards because it's been up for 30 years and it's made out of wood. And the strong winds that come in from the Atlantic kind of degraded the wood a little bit but the starlings have seemed to have found this little hole that they're nesting in and each year it's kind of like these beautiful friends that come back to visit me to nest in the same place and I can hear the kerfuffle that they do with their babies and you know the sounds get louder and louder as the season goes on but then one day it goes completely quiet and silent and then I realise that the chicks are fledged and there's a little bit of sadness to it but it's also more joy than sadness because I know another brood of starlings has fledged and it's just such a lovely feeling to think that my home where I live is home to other animals, I can share that place with them. A lot of people would think of just redoing their fascia boards and gutters and covering up all those holes where for me I actually want to make more holes and gaps in the house so that birds and creatures and pine martens can all nest in there. Birding is a peanut and crumb production supported by Swarovski Optic and Zurich Insurance.